Hello, I'm Faith Rogers, host of today's program, COVID-19, Keeping Up with a Moving Target. This activity is jointly provided by the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine, DKB Med, and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Today's program is accredited for ANCC and AAPA credit, as well as AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Please visit our website for complete CE information. If you're tuning into our webcast, please click the red claim credit button in the webinar console to attest for credit. Otherwise, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. Today's learning objective is to discuss the role of monoclonal antibodies for prevention of COVID-19. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Gilead Sciences Incorporated. All activity content and materials have been developed solely by the activity directors, planning committee members, and faculty presenters. With us today, we have Dr. Paul Allwater, Clinical Director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Dr. Allwater, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Faith. So the COVID-19 pandemic, of course, is continuing, and in many spheres of our lives, we're hoping to uh, get out of wearing masks and so on. But as we're heading into the respiratory season, there is perhaps some worrisome features in that we still have a substantial number of uh, daily infections, over 70,000 in the United States. And of course, those uh, rates are variable in states often with lower immunizations where we're seeing more infections and more hospitalizations. Also, interestingly, uh, in Europe, Germany and the United Kingdom have substantially higher rates than in the past, but again, primarily in the unimmunized uh, populations. So uh, we'll see what happens over this winter. I don't think it will be nearly as severe as what we saw last winter in uh, December, January, and February, uh, now that we have vaccines in substantial numbers and more natural immunity but does bear some watching and caution, especially for people that are at high risk. But what I'd like to focus a bit on in this conversation today is outpatient therapies for COVID-19, because we've really been limited to only monoclonal antibodies, and those have been around for a while now, perhaps underutilized since they're mainly an intravenous or subcutaneous uh, administration. So this is not something that can be easily picked up in the drugstore and generally require referral to specific locations that are set up by each state with distribution of the three monoclonal antibody products that I have listed here, bamlanivimab, etisivimab, casarivimab, and imdivimab, and citrovimab, with three of those approved for emergency use by the FDA for treatment and the two for post-exposure prophylaxis. So that would be for people at high risk for uh, uh, COVID-19 complications if they're unimmunized or if they're not expected to react well to vaccines. For treatment, these have been fairly effective. I mean, a 70 to 85% relative reduction in hospitalization or death, and people generally in the clinical trials have been getting them on average around day four after symptom onset. And then for post-exposure prophylaxis, a little bit of a wider range, there've been fewer studies, um, but especially with the casarivimab and indivimab, about an 80% reduction in developing symptomatic infections that might also prompt ED visits or hospitalizations. 
But the, the sort of logistic uh, barriers to the monoclonal antibodies having to fit into the EUA, uh, specifically uh, finding the referral center slots and so on are challenging. So there has been a, an absolute need for oral therapy, similar to what we might have with oseltamivir for influenza. There had been some initial uh, interest in this old-time serotonin uh, receptor inhibitor, uh, fluvoxamine, which has been on the market for many years. It's generic, often used for obsessive-compulsive disorder. And there have been two trials, but the one that's garnered a bit more attention has been the publication in October of 2021 of the TOGETHER trial, which uh, occurred in Brazil. And what they did there is they took uh, this drug, administered it twice a day for 10 days versus placebo. Their primary endpoint was an ED visit that lasted over six hours or hospitalization. And you can see here that there was um, a relative risk reduction of over 30%. Um, now, we don't know why fluvoxamine might work. Some have suggested it will inhibit viral attachment or somehow impair uh, the viral replication factors, so we're not exactly sure. Um, why hasn't this been touted or adopted more widely? Although this is a, a reasonable randomized controlled trial. Uh, Brazil, when this was done, was sort of overrun their hospitals and healthcare overextended. And some people have questioned whether sitting for six hours in an emergency room is really the right parameter uh, for this particular study. But uh, this is something that uh, some people have been discussing, but at the moment has not fit into any um, uh, strong recommendation by any national guideline in the United States, such as the NIH or the Infectious Diseases Society of America. However, two more traditional antivirals um, have had some information and are going to be in front of the FDA for emergency use consideration for treating outpatient uh, COVID-19 that's of a mild to moderate nature. Uh, the first one is molnipiravir. This is a nucleoside analog, and how this works is um, this drug inserts itself and therefore prompts essentially a mutation in the RNA that then makes um, uh, uh, proteins and so on that would not uh, necessarily uh, put together a virus and so on uh, in uh, the host cell. So um, this uh, was uh, sponsored by Merck um, and had 775 patients. Uh, the primary endpoint was the traditional hospitalization or, or fatality within the first month. And you can see here that about 14% in the placebo group reached that endpoint, but only half of that 7.3% did in the molnipiravir arm, uh, so about a 50% reduction. Uh, there were no deaths, interestingly, in the molnipiravir group, and the drug, at least short-term, appeared to be well-tolerated. So uh, this is going to be discussed by the Food and Drug Administration on November 30th. Uh, you may have seen news reports that, uh, based on this uh, early data of over 700 patients, the United Kingdom uh, purchased the drug uh, and is distributing it for use in their country. Now, some concerns have been raised. The full data set of this trial was not released by Merck. There's over 600 patients that we don't know anything about, uh, but purportedly will be uh, presented um, on November 30th. 
Also, some virologists have raised concerns that what you're essentially doing is a mutagenesis and that this compound has a very short half-life. And perhaps if this drug doesn't hang around long enough, you'll actually develop a mutants that uh, can escape this particular intervention, but also lead to mut mutant viruses that somehow may not respond well to other therapeutic interventions or lead to perhaps a greater pathogenicity. Also, there is the potential for human DNA mutations, not clear at all that this is the case. However, this has been raised uh, because of the known uh, mechanisms of this drug. So that probably is the first traditional oral antiviral that's out of the gate that we might see. However, just recently, a uh, protease inhibitor, which uh, is similar in class to drugs that have been used for hepatitis C and HIV, uh, was developed last year as a designer drug uh, by Pfizer um, and has been through phase one, two trials and had preliminary results of a phase three trial uh, just released. So this is a protease inhibitor as traditionally done is boosted with the uh, drug ritonavir, which is also used in uh, certain protease inhibitors for HIV care. Again, about 774 patients there, and it was given within three days onset of symptoms. The mechanism of protease inhibitors are a protease is required for a viral protein that is uh, produced by the host cell that needs to be cleaved into so-called non-structural proteins that are further needed for uh, uh, production of genomic RNA and new virus. So by inhibiting this, you sort of shut down the machinery necessary to make more virus. Um, so uh, in this particular uh, trial, what's reported is that if people do get the drug within three days of symptoms, there is a nearly 90% reduction in hospitalizations or death. Uh, and you can see no deaths in their active arm. And in the group that got it within five days, a slightly lower reduction. Um, and uh, preliminary safety data appeared to be good with fewer events in the um, treatment arm. So again, we only have very preliminary data, but we'll be looking forward more to this, but it does open some promising opportunities for treating outpatient uh, COVID-19, which I think uh, continues to be important. Although uh, for anyone emphasizing immunization in your unvaccinated patients uh, should and still be the main priority if we can convince them to proceed. So Faith, do we have any questions this week? Yes, and our first question here is, do you think the current COVID-19 vaccines will require periodic boosters or additional doses for people at low to average risk? Yeah, so this question I think is important. Um, Pfizer has already petitioned the FDA to allow boosters for anyone um, uh, over the age of 18, even if they don't have risk factors. Uh, the antigenic pulse that these mRNA vaccines give is very short-lived, and for that reason may not get quite as long-lasting uh, antibody responses, which is uh, why this concept of boosters uh, looks like it might be here to stay. Now, how frequently these will be needed I, remains an open question. Uh, it does look like, to me, it is likely regulatory agency 
will uh, allow boosters for a larger population. Thank you very much. And our next question, will PCR confirmation of SARS-CoV-2 be required for oral antiviral use? And would that limit its use? Yeah, so Faith, this is an interesting question. And I think if I were sitting on an advisory panel, of course, I do not have the complete data sets, but here's some thoughts that I have. If molnupiravir is being approved uh, 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 for emergency use, I think I would require a SARS-CoV-2 diagnosis for several reasons. First, um, uh, the drug probably should only be used in people that are uh, with risks factors for um, severe COVID-19. And because of potential for side effects with this drug that seem higher, um, uh, that potential means I would really want to target it to people that have SARS-CoV-2 and are at risk for severe disease rather than uh, someone that could have a pedestrian uh, respiratory infection and could be due to any number of viruses. Now, um, the protease inhibitor, uh, I think, raises a separate issue. If someone doesn't have a contraindication to ritonavir, perhaps this could be handled similar to oseltamivir, where we want to give the drug very early for effect. And <clears throat> if someone um, might have SARS-CoV-2, uh, we would just administer the drug and not fret too much about trying to get a diagnostic test, which might cause delay in terms of getting that drug on board. This is very similar to the strategy as mentioned with uh, oseltamivir or any of the antiviral drugs uh, that are uh, used for influenza, where uh, the outcomes seem to be better the earlier you take the drug. And I think this would be true for these compounds as well. So those are some of the uh, caveats sort of off the top of my head that I would think about in terms of how these drugs might be um, required to be used, but we'll certainly have to wait and see what uh, the FDA decides. Okay, great. Thank you so much, Dr. Alwater. Any questions or issues, feel free to email us at the address listed. To submit questions, please send them to qa at dkbmed.com. That's Q as in question, A as in answer, at dkbmed.com. Again, thanks for joining us and thank you for your dedication to your patients with COVID-19. Until next time, Dr. Alwater, thanks again. Thanks, Faith, and uh, certainly there'll be uh, more information to come on uh, drugs here in the pipeline, and thanks so much for listening.